Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Very pleased today to have uh, Professor Susan Harris Rimmer with us. She uh, is going to speak to us on the Rohingya, um, of course, a very pressing issue. And she, I'll just tell you a little bit about her background. She's Australian Research Council Future Fellow and Associate Prof here at Griffith in the law school. She's the author of Gender and Transitional Justice in 2010 and more than 40 refereed works on women's rights and international law. She was the Australian representative to the UN Commission on the Status of Women in 2014 and the W20, uh, which is Gender Equity Advice to the G20 in Turkey in 2014, China in 2016, and Germany last year. She's the national board member of the International Women's Development Agency, and she was named in the apolitical list of top 100 global experts in gender policy in May 2018. Is it so apolitical is capitalized? So is that, that's the name of the list. There, it's a very cool website, yeah. Okay. It, it, it does kind of policy advice, um, creative policy advice, but yes. And so people usually speak 35, 40 minutes and open it up for questions. Great. Feel free to leap in at any time um, as well. It can be very responsive. Right, come, come on in. Um, so I wish to acknowledge the Indigenous owners of the land and pay my respects to their elders past and present and emerging and also as I always do, um, confirm the Griffith Law School's commitment to the Uluru Statement of, from the heart. All right, so thank you so much for coming. I know it's very difficult to drag your eyes away from the train wreck that is Auspol at the moment, um, but this is such an important question, and it's also, I suppose, a complicated question, because as I'll put to you, there are many pathways that may be cul-de-sacs to justice, the concept of justice to the for the Rohingya and many other groups in Myanmar is not at all clear-cut. Um, so let's try and think about some of the political realities and unpack them, I suppose, is what we're going to do in this project. So um, as always, I, I thank the ARC and acknowledge their funding of my work. And as you can see, my research is actually about women's rights in transitional Myanmar. Uh, and I've been doing quite a lot of work uh, based on what embassies are doing in Myanmar. So quite a lot of my information in this talk is based on deep conversations with embassies at post, you know, that frontline diplomacy kind of aspect. All right, so the puzzle for this particular paper is if, if these are textbook crimes, uh, as has been noted by every UN human rights body that's had a look at these crimes, then why are why are the justice accountability pathways not in any textbook? <laughs> you know, why, why are these textbook crimes so difficult to find a pathway for? Um, and also the more complicated question always for transitional justice is what types of accountability will best promote democratic transition in Myanmar? A lot of the various options that we have for criminal justice are quite blunt instruments and there is quite a lot of concern within Myanmar with, outside that the very, very fragile and very partial democratic transition uh, is at threat based on whatever type of international actions take place. Now, I think we need to problematise that a bit, but anyway, we're looking at what kinds of accountability best promote human rights and democratic transition. Um, and this age-old question of what should the international community do, which is a trap, because as you saw from my first slide, I believe in localised justice solutions, so that is the courts in Yangon. But anyway, um, I'm very interested still in what the international community will do and how it feeds into localised justice responses. So we're going to start with a voice from the field, and um, this is the full... Um, 
handout from Rezai Sultana is, is I've given to you. Uh, here she is addressing the NGO, uh, on behalf of the NGO working group at the um, UN Security Council open debate on sexual violence and conflict in April of this year. And I suppose I'm, I'm opening with uh, Ms Sultana's words because she made several very important points. The first was that this was a slow burn genocide. So, in other words, the UN has, should have been aware that this particular um, uh, issue was coming for at least, she says, five to six years. Uh, and when I, sh I should just be very clear that what I'm talking about here. So I'm talking about uh, assaults and displacements perpetrated by members of the Myanmar Armed Forces, the Tatmadaw, um, acting in concert with members of local militias at times in the course of military clearance operations in October 2016-2017, uh, which pushed up to 700 members of the Rohingya community into Bangladesh. Uh, there's also significant displacement of Rohingya inside Myanmar, which we'll discuss and um, in, in the region. Sorry, that's the empiric background to this talk. All right, so that's the first point she made, was there has been a very large lead-up from 2012, and you could say before, to the current crisis, and why has the UN been ignoring um, the situation? The second was uh, basically that... Uh, in two major reports of testimonies who are uh, women victims of sexual violence, both Rohingya but also all over the ethnic minorities of Myanmar, there was a pattern of particular behaviour by the Tatmadaw um, in various ethnic communities that has also been ignored. So in other words, her point was this is bigger than the Rohingya, this is actually very important to a wide range of ethnic minorities. Um, uh, who have been warning about this type of behaviour and these patterns of behaviour for at least five years. And her, the report, um, which was published in February 2018, is called Rape by Command. So I open with that kind of um, direct voice, I suppose, because I think it's very important to frame this particular debate. And then we go into, I guess, uh, what what has happened and all the various uh, aspects of this crime. This is an image of uh, the Mabata, who are a particularly interesting, uh, very nationalist Buddhist group. And one of the points that was also made at the Security Council debate was the international community has had trouble <coughs> framing nationalist Buddhism uh, crimes as opposed to against a, a Muslim minor minority group. Uh, which is against a lot of the narratives of the current counter-terrorism wave where Muslim minorities are seen as threats. Uh, and I think that's also a prescient point that was made in this particular. I, I, I really enjoy this. Ethnicity can't be fabricated slide in English. I think that's quite, quite lovely. Um, all right, so that, that aspect, the religious and ethnic aspects of the, uh, of the uh, particular behaviour of the Tatmadaw deserve a lot more attention, uh, but have often been misread outside the country. But really what we're looking at is a Buddhist majority country that where the dominant rhetoric is of fear of being overwhelmed by Muslims, basically. Anywhere you go in Myanmar, you will hear that story very loud and clear. Not necessarily based on particular evidence or data, um, usually invoking Indonesia as the exemplar. So they the constant 
refrain is that Indonesia was a Buddhist country and then 300 <coughs> years later, look what's happened. So they're definitely taking the long view. Um, but anyway, that's, that's the sort of rhetoric you get even from the kind of NGO community in Myanmar. All right, so let's take our way through various and complicated UN responses. So as you uh, probably know, there's been a plethora of different bits of the UN responding to the Myanmar crisis. But first, I just want to take you through what happened in the UN office before the crisis. It's very interesting. So uh, after Sri Lanka, and the Sri Lankan UN response to Sri Lanka bears many, many hallmarks of similarity with what's been happening in Myanmar. The, uh, so after Sri Lanka, uh, the Secretary-General for Ban Ki-moon introduced something called the Human Rights Upfront. So this was UN country officers were going to make it much clearer that the UN human rights principles would be a clearer and more distinctive part of the UN's mission and that uh, UN officers in country would be more courageous in raising human rights issues. So this was the concept. So the idea was the UN had been far too quiet and complacent in Sri Lanka and had been to their detriment. Uh, and they, So the um, Secretary-General said staff are to take principled positions and act with moral courage and HQ would back them up. That's the concept. Proactive engagement. So human rights up front was meant to be applied in Myanmar and pretty much completely fell apart, it is now clear. So the UN country team felt, and it's defensible, that long-term development, particularly in Rakhine State, was best served by uh, economic development rather than overt human rights criticism of particularly the NLD after the elections. Uh, so I think that is defensible, but what it meant was the head of the country team sort of stifled any other type of response by UN staff. So the BBC reported in 2017, and now there have been public statements to this effect by UN officials, that in the four years before the, the, um, the uh, attacks last year, the head of the country team, which was a Canadian, tried to stop people travelling to uh, Rakhine State, shut down public advocacy on the subject and isolated staff who tried to warn that ethnic cleansing was about to occur. So the, the human rights up front part uh, has been very difficult. Um, and you'll note that uh, despite these very lot of research on sexual and gender-based violence in Myanmar, which is what the, the literature I know best, uh, but this is the first year that the Secretary-General's report on sexual and conflict-related violence has mentioned the Tatmadaw, so first time uh, in its history. So because it was actively silenced by the US. So, very interesting. Um, so there, there you have it. That, that was a country office. So you go from that very quiet development first approach to what has happened since. And uh, if you're interested in the UN more generally, there's a really beautiful report from the 4th of July meeting of the, of the High Commission with the, uh, the um, Burmese ambassador. So the, the, the general, um, the official version says something along the lines of um, the High Commissioner urges the government of Myanmar to grant immediate access to the Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Myanmar so that she can decide whether um, repatriation is possible. That's kind of the official version. And in the unofficial version, uh, the Myanmar government representative said that it was a government committed to the defence of human rights. And Mr Zayed said, remembering he's resigned now, he has no fear, he said... It creates a new category of absurdity 
In the four years I've been High Commissioner, I've heard so many preposterous claims. The claims I have just stated now is a new category of absurdity. Have some shame, sir. Have some shame. We are not fools, as he banged the desk. We are not fools. And that was the lead story in the New York Times the next day. Uh, I don't know if you've hung around many UN officials. They don't normally slam the desk and say, we are not fools, have some shame, sir. Uh, so it was quite extraordinary. And what he was reacting to in particular was that no Rohingya refugee has actually returned under the formal repatriation framework. Some who've, who have returned unofficially have been detained, or all of them have been detained, a, a tiny number. Uh, still no clear idea of how many Rohingya are inside uh, Myanmar um, because they won't respond to information. Um, he called all the national commissions that Myanmar have so far held bogus. Again, not something they normally yell at visiting diplomats. And, um, and then he stood up and said, uh, to straight to camera, if a member state of this organisation can force out 700,000 people in almost three weeks with practically minimal response by the international community, then how many others in this chamber are beginning to entertain something similar? Uh, and this is where the UN is most nervous. So this has happened several times in a row now. The Sri Lanka is basically able to establish complete dominance over northern Sri Lanka. The Rakhine state pretty much cleansed um, without much repercussion. So what does that what does that mean, I suppose, for the role of the UN Human Rights Organisation? I've never heard a High Commissioner, not even Mary Robinson or some of the most outspoken ones, speak in those terms, but I think it is probably the best uh, flavour of the internal uh, um, ideas and stress that's going on inside both Geneva and New York offices. But also a beautiful discourse analysis as to the official script and the unofficial script. <laughs> For shame! Um, all right, so, so there's no yet. But there are many other parts of the UN system. So when a similar issue happened in Syria, where absolutely everything was stymied, UNGA, the General Assembly, stepped up and passed uh, two years ago a what is under their regulations possible but has never been used. The IIIM, of course, it's a, obviously everyone knows that acronym. No, it's very, very arcane, but they have the, the General Assembly has the power to set up an international, impartial, and independent mechanism, and it can mean whatever they want it to mean, pretty much. It's equivalent to the special procedures part of the, um, the UN, uh, in uh, uh, the Human Rights Council. And they set one up for Syria in order to strengthen the Human Rights Council's independent inquiry, and they've done the same, or they're considering doing the same for Myanmar. Will they get the votes for uh, such a mechanism? Probably. Um, it's uh, easier to do than to pass something through the Security Council, of course. They have passed many Human Rights Council resolutions on Myanmar, most of which are focused on access. Please allow UN staff to have access to Rakhine State. They've sent lots and lots of high-level delegations to Bangladesh, to Cox's Bazaar, to interview uh, the people there, but no UN official have got anywhere close to the actual um, sites in, uh, in Rakhine State, only to the edges. One official visit, heavily supervised, uh, which is where the BBC ran amok and found out about the Reuters journalists that have been jailed, so they won't be doing that again soon. We'll talk a bit more about that soon. 
Um, the Office for the High Commissioner for Human Rights, you've just heard the High Commissioner is extremely uh, seized of this matter, we would say, in the UN system. Uh, he uh, has been working with the new Special Rapporteur, who is a Swiss, who currently will not say the word Rohingya, so we'll see how that goes, uh, and has set up an independent Commission of Inquiry, which has on it our very own Chris Sidoti. Uh, it's about to report. They've done two interim reports, but again have not been allowed access. They've been, they've been to Yangon, but they haven't had access anywhere near Rakhine State. And then um, the International Criminal Court, the prosecutor is doing something very interesting, which is, I'll tell you about uh, in a bit more detail. The UN Security Council, there's a lot of NGO advocacy and a traditional talk about justice for the Hingo would start and finish with the UN Security Council should refer this matter to the International Criminal Court because Myanmar is both unwilling and unable to, to um, provide uh, protection mechanisms or justice mechanisms internally. I think that's quite clear. Uh, so that's normally where uh, the international justice conversation stops. Yes, they should. It fulfils all the definitions of crimes against humanity and the Security Council should be seized for those. It fits the Rome Statute mandate and so they should refer. That hasn't actually worked in a very large number of cases now over the last 10 years, so I don't know why we <laughs> keep desperately clinging to this, but it should. The, the textbook crimes should lead to a textbook referral from the Security Council to the International Criminal Court. In political reality we live in, Russia has said straight up, very clearly, it will veto any such attempt. Uh, partly because it doesn't want to set a precedent around Syria and other places, or 99%, but it's also got an eye on its Chechnyan uh, situation, as it always does. One would expect China would also veto, but they haven't said one way or another because China has a very interesting role in this, which we'll explore a little bit too. Okay, so let's talk a bit about the International Criminal Court. So, all of you know, uh, Myanmar is not a party to the International Criminal Court, and so, as you all know, therefore, cannot be dragged in front of it. So, what is our very interesting International Criminal Court prosecutor doing at the moment? The ICC is under huge amounts of pressure to diversify its prosecutions outside Africa. Huge pressure. Uh, it might mean the end of the court if they don't do this. So, they uh, are desperately trying to uh, be more uh, global in their approach. <coughs> so, uh, she has basically, and given that um, it's true, there is no doubt that the, the particular events that took place in Myanmar have all the hallmarks of crime. This is why the UN's being so clear about it. It is the most blatant, systematic kind of attack on a civilian population that we've seen in a long time, and not particularly hidden like uh, Myanmar. It does not dispute the facts, uh, which is usually what happens, but those, the facts actually aren't disputed this time. Uh, and there's a huge amount of evidence being taken in terms of witnessing, but also satellite. So you see large areas of a current state where villages have been burned to the ground and various other things. So there's all kinds of evidence that is pretty much uh, in, not in dispute. So the prosecutor for the ICC is trying to think about, well, well, how on earth could the ICC have some sort of role in this? And what she has done is she's seeking to assert the jurisdiction of the court over the people in Bangladesh, so over the Rohingya who have been pushed over the border and are currently in Bangladesh. So in other words, Bangladesh would be the party 
to this court who are a member of the International Criminal Court and willing to have this, this piece put before the ICC. The argument is, if you only focus on forcible deportation over the border, then all the elements of the crime can be done within Bangladesh. So all the witnesses are in Bangladesh, most of the actus reus of the crime is in Bangladesh, and uh, you know the perpetrators can be identified from Bangladesh, and therefore there is no reason why you could not run a successful trial based on Bangladesh alone. Required Bangladesh government's support. They have written a full brief uh, with their own evidence, independently gathered. Uh, so uh, in terms of is it feasible, is it logistical, yes, it can be done. Uh, so this is based, as I said, on Article 7 of the Rome Statute, deportation or forcible transfer of the population is a crime against humanity. So in the motion of the 9th of April, Prosecutor said that the court had jurisdiction because um, the the international border was the particular um, jurisdiction that was in question. So that the border between Myanmar and Bangladesh was the piece that was needed for this particular crime, and so that is the piece that the court can access through Bangladesh. Uh, the ICC uh, asked Myanmar government to provide observations but they did not respond and then they got very angry at the Rome Court and released a whole range of um, allegations towards the International Criminal Court which were misplaced because this is the prosecutor so the court hasn't done anything yet this is the prosecutor putting something in front of the judges to decide whether they can take this so this is a preliminary piece Myanmar's not on trial in any way, shape or form uh, now, what is the judges of the ICC, strangely, have decided to have their hearing in camera, which they've never done before. So they're going to have a hearing. Pretty much they're allowing Myanmar a bit more time, then they're going to give up, and then they're going to have a hearing in camera, and they're going to decide whether they will take this case or not. If they do, it would be remarkable. And it would mean that Jordan suddenly has a way to deal with the forcible deportation of Syrians into its border. Uh, and India would have all kinds of claims from all kinds of people uh, about Tibetans and various other things. It would mean an exceptionally uh, uh, enlarged jurisdiction for the court. For that reason, I think the court might really entertain it more than they normally would because what is the point of having an international criminal court who can't deal with things that happen that cross international borders, particularly at the scale of this so we will see. Many, many, many legal experts have provided opinions to the judges to help them, and most of the opinions, as you would expect from international criminal lawyers, are in favour. Uh, the, the government of Bangladesh responded to... Yes, they're very in favour. So, I mean, without Bangladesh's cooperation, all of this, it, certainly, it would have been off the table, but they have been extremely eager to have the ICC deal with this issue, partly because they're terrified that otherwise there will not be ever a, a durable solution found for these people. So uh, I've been asked several times, what would, what would it matter? So if the ICC comes out and says there was forcible deportation into Bangladesh, then what? Well, what it means is those uh, Rohingya get access to a victim's fund for a start, which would be exceptionally important, I think, for their, their livelihood, which is what Bangladesh is very focused on because they're a huge economic burden. But also, it might mean that the repatriation agreement that the UN has to deal with between Bangladesh and Myanmar would have to have more uh, human rights uh, guarantees built into it because these people are seen as victims of an international crime. 
Uh, but there's this broader point about the, the general survival in the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court as well. So I think for people who believe in the International Justice Project, it's a very special time. Does it solve, necessarily provide justice for a very partial? It's really only focused on that forcible deportation element. Uh, and again, access to the perpetrator is going to be exceptionally difficult. So as we saw in Timor, you can have the most beautiful indictments and never get access to Brimol by the TNI, and so it was all for naught. All right. Um, yeah, so um, basically the memorandum of understanding between the High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNDP, and the Myanmar government for the repatriation of Rohingya refugees at the moment is secret, which is very unusual. Uh, and so uh, part of the ICC investigation is to try to get that agreement published and transparent. All right. So that's that part. Um, and we should find out about I was hoping that would come out soon because it's been a year since the Rohingya uh, attacks and so I was hoping it would somehow, on the anniversary, um, the ICC would have their special hearing, but it hasn't quite occurred in time. All right, bilateral responses. And here's probably really where the rubber hits the road for Myanmar. This is about what UN and the EU, uh, sorry, the EU and Canada and the US and the UK and Australia and all the other countries that um, have significant foreign direct investment, trade relations with Myanmar and significant aid programs towards Myanmar. This is what they're doing. Um, the EU have been extremely exercised about the detention uh, and false claims against the Reuters journalists. So you can imagine when you detain two Reuters journalists, you bring the full force of the international press down upon you. And so a lot of the uh, interventions there have been... Uh, so the Reuters... You all know about the Reuters journalists. So they, they discovered a mass grave, have photographs, quite decent evidence about the killing of 10 uh, uh, Rohingya men in this particular grave. They have photos. They have everything they needed. Um, and the government pulled them out of a cafe said they had secret government papers on them, which then suddenly they did, and um, put them into detention under the UK Old Official Secrets Act, which is still on the books in Myanmar. So they're awaiting trial. They say all kinds of, you know, they think it's a complete frame-up, and most of the international community have taken that view, that it is a frame-up to avoid that story being leaked, but it, uh, or to being published, but it in fact was. Uh, so a lot, a lot of the international focus has been around those journalists, um, but also, I suppose, around their own particular relationship with the Tatmadaw under various military cooperation MOUs and understandings. There has been a wide range of responses here. So a couple of weeks after all of this happened, um, there was a large Tatmadaw delegation being entertained in the UK, uh, filmed at Windsor Palace, having a little romp in the tea garden, uh, which did not go down well uh, uh, back um, in the human rights community. <laughs> so there's quite a lot of pressure put on those countries that have military engagement programs to, to start you know, adding more accountability there. Uh, and that is happening. So uh, slowly, though, very slowly, um, but the US in particular has greatly scaled back its military uh, cooperation scheme. And the most important thing, I suppose, is the Treasury. Um, if you really are going badly in life, you end up on a US Treasury sanctions list. Uh, and it's taken a year, and which is very slow normally for the Treasury, and the State Department report's still not out 
Again, it was expected to be out by now. Uh, it's expected to find war crimes and crimes against humanity were committed. And the thing about the US State Department and the US Treasury is they use their particularly advanced intelligence networks and they name names. Because uh, the purpose of these is usually is usually counterterrorism related, but they like to name names so that those individuals can no longer enter the US and their assets are frozen and so forth. So they name names. Uh, they, uh, the US, uh, Canada and the EU had also named the same people. Um, so now you have most of the, the, the key aid donors naming the same people, but they've named seven individuals, which is not a lot. But Treasury Department's done something I've never seen them do before, even against the Indonesian. They sanctioned two units. So the 99th and 33rd Light Infantry Divisions are seen as entirely human rights violating. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about these this Treasury list is that it's not just about the Rohingya um, attacks last year, it's also about um, campaigns against the Shan, Kachin, Karen. So it's, uh, it's campaigns against ethnic minority communities and patterns of campaigns. It's the first time the US has, has done that. Some of the uh, ethnic minority groups who are Christian up in the uh, north east uh, have very strong relationships with Christian lobby groups in Congress, uh, and there's a congressional group, particularly for, for two of the ethnic minorities, so I think that partly explains that. So, now those folk are on a US Treasury list that is up the ante somewhat. Uh, two of the main people on that list have, have been resigned. One, because apparently he wasn't strong enough against the Rohingya was the official reason, weak in his response but real reason probably happened straight after the Canadians named him. Um, so they were both allowed to retire or resign because of weakness in their response to the ring. It was quite interesting. All right. Um, there's also... So there's, there's those. No one at the moment has reimposed economic sanctions to the point they were before the NLD won the 2015 elections, but there's a lot of discussion about that. Those sanctions were already exceptionally controversial, whether they hurt ordinary... Burmese more than they affected the, the Tatmadaw. Uh, and I don't think we'll ever see exactly the same types of sanctions, but sanctions are certainly being discussed again. And for us, most um, close to home is whether us, we as international academics should boycott uh, Burmese universities and Burmese conferences. Um, I don't. I've just been to a big Burmese studies conference in Mandalay, um, and I will continue to teach for the University of Yangon in their graduate certificate, but I, could, I can see the argument. So other Burmese academics, Burmese studies folk have taken the opposite view and are now suspending their cooperation. Uh, most of our Australian universities now have MOUs with either the University of Yangon or University of Mandalay. So there's lots of discussion. And when I was a visiting fellow at Oxford, they've gone completely bonkers and taken all the pictures down from the walls and decided to suspend... Uh, every type of action. Um, so there's, there's some serious issues there around tourism and, and education cooperation because international education was quite a big market for Australia and many other uh, OECD countries. So the other, other part of this is NGO campaigns. So there's quite a few large sort of justice for Rohingya claims. So actually my talk is really about justice for all Burmese, but I'm using the justice for Rohingya tag because that's the name of the big international justice campaign um, and it's very 
interesting, I suppose, as to their tactics. So they're basically the first idea is to go for international commercial firms who are getting Rohingya land uh, or, or having access to industry through uh, Rakhine State. This is particularly sensitive because part of the One Belt, One Road initiative is going to go through Rakhine. So that's a whole other very interesting story. South of where the massacres took place, but in the same state. This is partly because you can get to those firms because they're headquartered in OECD states where these campaigns are based, uh, but also because we've got this very useful precedent of a Swedish firm um, being done at the moment for um, what was seen as corrupt behaviour in Darfur, but also even from the Nuremberg trials, so several factories that used benefited from um, forced labour in concentration camps that were successfully prosecuted. So it's a, quite a new and interesting area. Also, the UK and other... You remember the Pinochet case? The UK in particular has very strong universal jurisdiction laws, as does Belgium, so it's seen as it's much easier to get one or two people from a regime, get them into a country and then slam them with something. Uh, so you don't have to rely on justice inside Burmese borders particularly for transnational corporations, as I said, but also Facebook. There is a very active legal team working on suing Facebook for providing all kinds of fake news and um, Mabatar platforms, doctored videotapes and claims, um, racist claims. Uh, very well documented. All the human rights activists inside BMR have written a letter to Facebook twice. Facebook have failed to respond. It's a course celeb. Um, but it was shocking. All the way through it, I was getting all kinds of weird stuff on Facebook from saying that you know the, the Rohingya had risen up and was massacring everybody in the current state instead of, in fact, the opposite. <coughs> all right. Um, and now here's the most important part, and the last part, temper justice, which is uh, Aisam Suchi, the lady's phrase. So she's always said that from the Tatmadaw she will only ever be seeking tempered justice. Uh, this is part of the concept of a disciplined democracy that you... So if the military allow a disciplined democracy in return, the lady offers tempered justice. So in other words, tempered justice is the best translation we can come up with, but it basically means uh, quiet over time, no, no prosecutions of individual mil current Tatmadaw leadership. Uh, not part of any written-down deal, but she said it in, in responses to international community questions about transitional justice. Her response over and over has been, we will pursue tempered justice. Um, the ability of the lady to pursue any type of justice under the Constitution is exceptionally limited. I don't know why we're in a frenzy about the lady. She is ancillary to... She has normative power, but in this particular case, not legal power. So some attempts of my fellow colleagues to try and arrest her at the ASEAN summit were misled. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, certainly normative power, though, and she's, she's chosen not to use that power at all um, and, in fact, do everything she can to make the lives of the international community trying to visit Arakan's state of misery. Um, there's several theories for that, partly because... Uh, it is such a common, as I open this story, it's such a common um, held belief that Bengalis are a threat to the average Burmese Burma that she would lose votes. She ran no Muslim candidates 
in the 2015 election, and she's Burmese for the Burma in terms of her father's legacy, and I think in reality. Um, so I don't think she was ever going to be a champion of human rights for the ethnic minorities, but we, we were unable to understand the nuances, I think. <laughs> you know, a human rights, uh, we called her a human rights icon, um, and then we ascribed a whole wide range of human rights positions to her, uh, and I think that was probably our fault rather than hers. But still, it's still disappointing, and I understand why people are disappointed, but in terms of this particular talk, we're really looking at legal forms of justice rather than punishment. But the, the fact is, would the, would the lady be re-elected if she came out hard and strong for the Rohingya? Probably not. That's her, as, a, as a politician, it would be like a party here suddenly radically changing its views on asylum policy. It would have electoral consequences, uh, even though it would be completely human rights compliant. Um, all right, so uh, as you can see, the head of the Tatmadaw, this is from his personal website, doesn't seem to be suffering unduly from international critique. <laughs> uh, he is currently visiting a Moscow town, as he puts it, um, and to a wonderful reception and has a very strong reception in Thailand as well. Uh, so the Tatmadaw as body is, apart from those seven individuals that I said were named by the US Treasury, is currently not particularly suffering particular consequences, and but military engagement MOUs are being looked at. This is the National Commission that Aisung Suu Kyi and the NLD have set up. Um, so it's a very interesting, as, as, as the High Commissioner put it, they've had one bogus commission after another. This is the most serious attempt the Myanmar government has put forward. Um, and they've had their first meeting just recently on August the 16th. This is their first press conference. They're an independent commission. They're chaired by a Filipino diplomat. That's Rosaria Manola in the middle. Next to her is a, the uh, previous Japanese ambassador to the UN. And then two uh, Burmese uh, participants who are high-level uh, lawyers, basically. Uh, the one on the right who was leading the previous commission of inquiry. And so they said all the right things at this uh, August the 16th. Um, Manolo hit back at the sceptics. She said, we don't, want, we don't want people to think maliciously. We're going to be independent, impartial and neutral because truth is the only way forward. So that sounds good. Um, uh, the Japanese uh, ambassador said, there are still some facts and information that have not fully come out um, and set the record straight sound a bit ominous, but what they're not going to so they will go to Rakhine State, so they they will have access to the sites they will have first hand evidence, uh, they'll also be able to speak to the displaced Rohingya who are there, presumably but apparently they have not yet decided whether they'll travel to Bangladesh to talk to the refugees in Cox's Bazaar, so we are yet to have any type of justice solution that talks to people inside the country and outside the country, which is a why all these justice pathways are probably doomed to some sort of failure. Anyway, um, they are going to report by April next year. No, not April, August 2019, which is a pretty classic buying time um, technique. So, uh, I mean, the real politic of this would be let's stop any kind of concept of an under-resolution or by saying we're having our own credible tribunal. So it's just as credible as it can possibly be short of 
incredible. <laughs> but you never know. There was a there was a very difficult um, independent inquiry inside Indonesia that I and many other international criminal lawyers thought was a complete frame-up bogus commission, and it did come out with some really important recommendations about internal uh, reforms required to the TNI and Brimob. So you never know, right? They, these are serious people. We'll see what they come up with. Who appointed this this commission, this this inquiry committee? TNLD. I suppose she appointed them. Yeah. So previously, remember the, the lovely late Kofi Annan uh, did his own inquiry uh, commission. So the the attacks against the Rohingya happened on the day that Annan report was handed down, which is why at first everyone thought it was some sort of stunt. But it was actually uh, the ASRK chose that moment to to attack the police stations. Um, and I think I think the Annan report was excellent and basically says the only path, the only durable path here is for citizenship. You know, it's about constitutional reform of citizenship and just acknowledging that the Rohingya have the right to live in Myanmar. Um, and uh, that report was received reasonably poorly by the NLD as well as the Tatmadaw. So you could argue that that report strengthened the response of the Tatmadaw against the Rohingya civilians. Probably, I mean, there's evidence of quite a lot of planning in the attacks against the civilian villages. So you can't say it was it didn't happen as spontaneously as it looks, but I'm sure it didn't help. Um, so in conclusion, I've given you lots and lots of <laughs> lots and lots of different things that are happening, but nothing that looks particularly promising. Um, or in terms of full justice, and particularly not for the other ethnic minorities. Um, I think possibly the uh, the best bet is probably the um, uh, bilateral uh, MOUs around military engagement being reformed. So this idea of what does principled engagement with Myanmar look like? What sort of changes will that make to the way that we've been engaging in very full-throttle military cooperation, including Australia. Australia's really got to think hard about that. What does principled engagement in military cooperation look like at this point um, in the absence of other types of justice mechanisms? Uh, also, the aid program. So there's a lot of calls with using our aid program to... Well, our very diminished aid program to um, preserve evidence, take witnesses, witness testimony generally strengthen the ability of local courts to respond to those types of crimes. But I think what we, we need to remember is the whole country is a crime scene in a sense. So this is a very long-running uh, issue in Myanmar. Myanmar's had many, many <laughs> issues, including the, the British colonial era, um, but also in the 70 years of independence quite a lot of conflict and a very long-running military dictatorship. So, it's, yeah, and, and now a huge amount of humanitarian disasters as well. I mean, we haven't even got the humanitarian part right for the Rohingya, which is, I think, one of the most depressing aspects of this. Sometimes we get the humanitarian piece right and not the justice piece right. In this case, we've got kind of none of it right. Um, so all our humanitarian agencies are basically saying the flooding is also affecting Bangladesh. Um, they're looking at cholera, they're looking at all kinds of things happening. You're looking at literally the victims of these crimes dying before they get to have their evidence taken. It's, it's an omni-shambles in every respect. Um, but I wanted to point out that the rest of Myanmar also has significant transitional justice issues. Um, 
which are manifesting itself daily in terms of very high rates of um, violence against children and uh, violence in the home, but also street and public violence. Violence against women. Violence Gang against women. But also the Arakan army is still very active, you know, again, still fighting against the colonisation of Arakan state. There's a lot happening. <laughs> um, it is a... I think the story that is told about Myanmar is the story about uh, opportunity, foreign direct investment, wonderful opening up... Um, but I think the reality of Myanmar is a very fragile, precarious, still military-dominated state. Um, I think we got swept up in the Cinderella story of the lady and ceased doing the sort of proper international relations work we should be doing. Uh, so in the very last couple of ideas, the durable solutions part is a mess. And here's where China comes in. Oh, just a couple of seconds on it. Um, China's Belt Road Initiative goes through Burma in two spots, one of them being in Rakhine State. <coughs> and uh, so China took a hand very adequately in bringing together the Tapmador and the NLD to try to come up with the, the repatriation framework, which is pretty much overseen by China. It's quite an unusual role for China to play. Um, they have a stake in stability in that particular part of the world, as they do in many other parts of the world. I've also seen China trying to, trying to deal with how it wants the Belt and Road Initiative to go through Afghanistan and what might need to be done for that to happen. Uh, they, have a, they have a need for stability, but not necessarily justice. So I think the worst-case solution could be China forcing back the refugees to Myanmar, where they live in a state which was even worse than it was before, and it was pretty bad before, in interned camps no right to marry without state permission, only two children, five years apart, no ability to run a business, no land ownership, and many, many other things. Not even the ability to wear trousers for men, all kinds of things. So um, I think that that pathway is not a justice pathway. Um, ASEAN has been a total disgrace. We can talk about that in questions. Uh, but is doing several things behind the scenes in terms of um, aid and expertise. Now UNHCR is talking about the idea of a comprehensive plan of action as we had for the Indo-Chinese, that it might take all the OECD countries just taking, you know, small groups of Rohingya out. That would destroy the cultural composition of that group, but it might be a way for that group to survive. There are all men already extensive Rohingya diaspora all over the world, but particularly in Malaysia, um, I might just say that the Malaysian, Turkish and Indonesian advocacy on behalf of the Rohingya is perceived inside Myanmar as all their worst nightmares coming true. Uh, see, see, what's also going to take over? It's a, it's a very complicated situation. Um, so, basically, justice for pretty much all Burmese is still a long way away, even tempered justice. Um, so I just want you to remember that the same people who are trying to come up with these solutions are the people still wrestling with their own 88 generation and, and, and other issues with the Tapmador. So you've got a very complicated layer of injustice and injustice and injustice for all the different groups. And um, I think we have to be careful of singling out particular groups. But I think in this case, the textbook crimes deserve some sort of justice ending narrative. And that's all. Thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, 
go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.